Our scripture text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the living, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I think most of us probably are familiar with the, um, <clears throat> the Ugly Duckling, the story by Hans Christian Andersen, written probably in the middle of the 19th century toward the second half. And the story is really quite simple. It's this idea of uh, a duckling being born and, and it being ugly and it being ostracized and ignored by the others and pushed away from his family and friends. And then as the story goes, it would become this beautiful and magnificent swan. It's kind of teaching that principle uh, simply that there can be hidden beauty in the midst of brokenness, ugliness, and awkwardness. And if I could be so bold, I'd like to draw an analogy of that story with the church. You know, the, the church has a hidden glory to it in the midst of the, the differences that we have, the brokenness that we have, the awkwardness that we may feel. The church is seen as very broken. And yet there's a hidden glory that Paul's telling us about the nature of the church. Now, it wasn't always this way. A lot of people used to think the church was quite central and important in life. In fact, where I went to seminary up in New England and all these towns, the center of the town always had the church. Even the town Carolyn and I grew up in, in Annapolis, Maryland. All the roads led to the church up from the harbor, Annapolis. So they were there. It was Church Circle, St. Anne's. It was right there in the center. It was in the center of people's life. But it isn't that way anymore. Uh, George Barna in his book Revolution actually asked the question, do we need the church? I mean, many people see the church as something that can be a help, maybe, but surely it's not a necessity. Paul wouldn't see it that way. In our passage today, Paul is holding up before us, reminding Timothy uh, of the significance of the church, of the importance of the church, of the centrality of the church in God's plan to reach the nations. Now, if today's the first day you're here, we're looking at the book of 1 Timothy. It's called 1 Timothy because it's the first letter Paul, the aged apostle, wrote to Timothy, who is his protege, a pastor in Ephesus. And he's writing Timothy to remind him of hey, this is how the church is to function. This is the beauty of the church. This is how you're to, to work and serve in a broken world. And so in chapter 1, we saw the message of the church. Remember, <clears throat> the message of the church is the gospel. So God, in his mercy, has brought forth a son, a chosen servant, to come and live among us in a way that God would be honored. And yet he lives, not for himself, but to bear our sins and our shame and our guilt, so that by faith we might be reconciled to God, the one who has made us. And this message of the gospel is to be both promoted but protected. We found those false teachers in chapter 1, and we'll see them again in chapter 6. And then we saw the worship of the church in chapter 2, right, that we're to pray for kings and all those in authority. <clears throat> Men and women are given directions in worship. 
And then chapter 3, we saw the leadership of the church. These elders and these deacons, these men, and, and as I argue, deacons, women, kind of working towards serving the church and leading the church well. And it leads us right to our passage in chapter 3, in uh, verses 14 through 16. It's kind of the high watermark, if you will, where Paul is showing us this is the beauty of God's design for his church. So we're going to look at the importance of the church in the first two verses, 14 and 15. And then we see the treasure of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ in verse 16. They're inextricably something like that, tied together. <laughs> it worked well this morning, didn't now. But they're tied together. It's the church and the treasure of the church. So let's look at the importance of the church. Look with me at 14 and 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So Paul tells us quickly, this is why I'm writing. Uh, Paul is perceiving that he might be delayed, but he wants to get the information to Timothy so that he can get the church in order for it to function well. He doesn't tell us why he might be delayed. But it's so important to him. This letter stands as like an apostolic witness. This is Paul before him. The letter is containing everything Paul would say if he was there. This is how you ought to behave in the church. And then he goes and begins to explain the importance of the church. And you see this in the three metaphors that he uses. This household of God, this church of the living God, this pillar and buttress of truth. Let's look at these just briefly because it's really supposed to remind us of the beauty and the glory of that which is us, a gathered community, a church. So first, the household of God. What's this mean? Well, the household of God, of course, is not the house of God <clears throat> in terms of a building. This is where I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. We saw the church, the church building, that's the house of God. That's where he lives. You go visit him, it's a sacred space, you go visit him once a week, you leave, he stays at the house. I don't think he means that at all. I think he's speaking about the family of God. And the reason I say that is because he's already used this word twice in chapter 3 when he's looking at the, the households of elders and the households of deacons. He's speaking about the family. The house of God, we're the family of God. Just as our households have a father, perhaps a mother, maybe a mother, children, but there are unique relationships in the family, and, and there are unique responsibilities. And that's what he's saying here. The church has certain responsibilities, has unique relationships with one another, with God as a father. So he's painting the church as a family with God as a father. But, but this is a family you just don't, you know, join by choice or by human will. Uh, this is a family that we join by faith. This is what Jesus means when he says in John 3, 3, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he be born again or she be born again. We have to be born again. That's a term that's kind of used in a negative way now. It's a beautiful term. We're born into human families, but we also have to be born into God's family by the power of the Spirit convicting us of sin, that we see the holiness of God, we see our lives, and so we repent and say, God, I need a Savior, and the Savior is, of course, Jesus the Messiah. He has saved us. And, and so we now enter this new family by faith with God as a Father, now forgiven, reconciled, and adopted. 
And not just do we have God as a father, but we, we gain these brothers and sisters who have come in the same way by the Spirit of God, through the gospel, in faith. So this is the nature of the church. It's a household of faith. Is this the way you view it? Do you see your covenantal membership here in a similar way as you do with your family members? You know, a lot of times I think we see the church, we kind of, many people have a priority of God and then family and then church and then the world. But, but is that the order that we have here? Or is it not God and his family and then our biological family and then the world? I, I mean, isn't with God the brothers and sisters that we have? I don't think Paul's setting these in opposition to each other, but I think he's reminding us of the eternal nature of our relationships that is far more significant than the biological connections we have with our own family. I think he's lifting before us the importance of our responsibilities and the love that we ought to have with one another. This is why when people say, well, I can be a Christian without going to church, can we? I, I mean, I think that would be an anomaly in the New Testament to think of, a, of an orphan Christian or a homeless Christian, a Christian that doesn't want to be with other brothers and sisters. And I think it also speaks against this new trend towards factional friendships. You know, we're starting to move, David French in an article speaks about these factional friendships, where we're starting to align now with things on social and political lanes that that this is, this is my people in terms of their political theory, or even where they land on the mask mandate in the past, or perhaps the way we educate our kids, or, the, or the, the dietary or the health restrictions we have. These can all be lanes that we find. If all of our friends are in there, then this passage is kind of challenging that and saying that our friendships are broad and they're wide with men and women who have come to the same Father through faith. So we see this is a family of God, that familial love that we have for one another. But second, look at what he says. It's the church of the living God. That word for church just simply means assembly. So it was often used in Greek literature where they would call the people out and they would have a political discussion or perhaps a, a discussion on something that impacts their community. And so it's an assembly of citizens. Well, when he says we're the church of the living God, He's saying that we're called out and we're together, we're together in the midst of a living God. So in contrast to the deadness of pagan theology and idol worship, our God is alive. <clears throat> and when we gather, he is here with us in a unique way. Now this shouldn't be a surprise to you. God has always wanted to dwell with his people. You see it in Adam and Eve in the garden. He walked with them in the cool of the day. Even after they sinned and they were removed from the garden, God was with them, appeared to them. He appeared to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He led Moses with the pillar of cloud and fire through the wilderness. He gave Moses the plans of the tabernacle where he would dwell in the midst of his people. You see the plans given to David for the temple where he would be with his people. And you see wonder of wonders, God dwells with us in Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. You see Jesus even saying, it's good that I go away. Can you imagine what you have said that? No way, it can't be good that you're going away. Well, I'll send another comforter. He's the first comforter. And the Spirit now mediates God's presence among his people. Is this the way you see the church? 
that we gather to experience the presence of God. This gets me, this wants me to come. I, I want to gather. We're scattered throughout the week, but the Sunday morning, I mean, we're, to get, we're not a social club. It's not a spiritual help group. No, we want the presence of God to be among us. But how do we experience it? A lot of people, I think, think they experience if their hair kind of raises, if the, um, if the music is uniquely emotional, or perhaps we can affect it with some, some lights, some darkening of the room. I don't think that's the way we experience the presence of God. I think we experience the presence of God through each other. And that's why we have to gather together. It's the coming together where the Christ in you, the Christ in me, encouraging, seeking the spiritual good of one another, confessing, perhaps rebuking, helping, loving, serving, listening to. As we walk with each other, the Spirit of God moves in us to serve one another. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's whole premise in his book, Life Together. Short little book. I know many of you have read it. It was written in a time, of course, where they were under the pressure of the Nazi regime, and he was part of an underground church, Lutheran pastor, theologian, philosopher, and it was in the context of the pressure when they were moving life on life so closely that they began to experience this unique presence of God through each other. He writes these words. He says, Christ became our brother in order to help us. Through him, our brother has become Christ for us. In the power and authority of the commission, Christ is given to him. Our brother stands before us as a sign of truth and grace of God. He has been given to us to help us. He, he hears the confessions of our sins in Christ's stead. He forgives our sins in Christ's name. He keeps the secret of our confession as God keeps it. When I go to my brother to confess, I'm going to God. It's a unique relationship. We don't look to the heavens to find God. We don't look to the halls of power to find God. We look to each other to see the Spirit of God working in them, drawing us to them and to God. That's the fellowship, the Father and the Son with us by the power of the Spirit. So we're the church of the living God. We're also the family of God. But then look third, we're the pillar and buttress of truth. Now, just let your mind drift to Roman or Greek architecture with these massive columns, right? Carol and I have walked through the Parthenon before, and they have these massive columns that once held this huge roof. <clears throat> this temple would have been seen from all the surrounding areas. And he's calling the church the pillar, uh, holding up. Now, let me, let me say this quickly. The church doesn't determine the truth. The church surely doesn't create the truth. But we hold it forth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at, just in a moment, verse 16. That truth is being held up by the church. We are holding it forth like stars in the heavens in a very dark and broken universe. We hold forth this good news of Jesus Christ. God in mercy, bringing forth a son to save and deliver and to reconcile. That's what we're preaching and speaking to in a confused world. Listen, you know the world. You eat and sleep it 24-7. It's a confused world. They're looking for joy. They're looking for happiness. They're looking for some sense of significance and security. And they're turning to people, relationships. They're turning to pleasures. They're turning to technology. They're turning to government. They're turning to all these different sources. And we all know that they may serve for a time. And these things may be very good gifts of God, but they're not God. 
And only God can save. Only God can give us that sense of true comfort, security, significance, importance. And we are the ones, the pillar, holding it up. So we're to promote the gospel. We're to preserve the gospel. As I said in chapters 1 and chapter 4, we're going to see it next week. Chapter 6, in a few weeks, we see that the false teachers are going to undermine or distract or dilute the gospel. And, and so we want to have that simple gospel given to us. At first importance, it was passed on to us, and we pass it on to those. We're not going to adjust it. We're not going to invent it. We're not going to tweak it. We're going to give it as it was given to us. But we don't just promote it and preserve it. As the pillar of truth, we're also the buttress. A buttress, if you were to go to the church at Notre Dame in Paris, you'd see these stone works going up the side of the walls of the church. In that day, that was how to keep a very high wall stable. And they buttressed, they kind of supported the walls. The church is a buttress of the truth. What's that mean? Well, I think it means that we support it by the way we display the gospel in our lives. The way we live authenticates the reality. The change that takes place in us authenticates the reality of the power of the gospel. That's why Paul speaks to us about how the church ought to behave. Because as the church lives differently than the world, then it removes any objection or any excuse that the world may have for not believing the truth of the change that's taken place in us. That's why we pray for those in authority. We don't fear government. We don't fear authority. We pray for authority. That's why men lift up holy hands without wrath or dissension. That's why we reconcile. They don't reconcile. We do. And we worship without wrath or dissension. Women being godly, handling themselves appropriately. That's not the world. It's the church. Elders and deacons walking out lives above reproach. That's not the way leadership is out there. It isn't here. Do you see what we're doing? We're kind of reflecting a different order by the way we live. And that's why Paul's giving us these instructions. You know, Francis Schaeffer was a well, kind of a prophet, if you will, seen by many in the 20th century. And by that, I just meant he had a, a good analysis of culture. And he said these words. He says, if we don't show love to one another, the world has a right to question whether, whether Christianity is true. Our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. Isn't that amazing that he would use us to display his glory through what we preach and how we live to authenticate the glory of this gospel? I mean, it is kind of counterintuitive. We know each other, right? We know our foibles and our brokenness. And yet it's the church is the preferred medium to bring forth the church in all of our goofiness. You know, Dorothy Sayers was an English playwright, and she said God endured three humiliations in his work among the world. He says the first humiliation was, of course, coming in the flesh, Jesus being born as a baby. That was the first. The second humiliation was when he endured our sins and our shame, the curse of God, being mocked, tortured, and crucified. The third humiliation is when he chose the church to be his representative in this world. Isn't that amazing? But God does what appears to be foolish, but it's really quite wise. Paul writes that. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
So in the end, we would give all the glory to God in Christ. But that's what he's called us to be, the church, the pillar and buttress of truth. So you see these three metaphors, and I want to kind of draw us out of our spiritual amnesia, forgetting or looking at the church from a worldly perspective and seeing it as Paul saw it. Because Paul's teaching Timothy, tell the church this, remind them of who they are. You are the family of God, those who have come to him through faith in his son. You are the church, the, the living God exists among us as we gather, and we're the pillar and the buttress of truth. Isn't it a beautiful picture of the church? I mean, doesn't it, don't we need this kind of reminder to think, that's who I am? You know, I know so many of our parents, we, our kids may not feel love. They may not feel like they're good at anything. And we try so earnestly to get them. You are loved. You do this well. We want them to understand it deeply because we love them. I kind of feel the same with Paul. He wants us to really get this and live in light of it. And then you see Paul, after he describes the church, then he speaks to the treasure of the church. This is what gives the church life. Look with me at 16. In 16 he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, taken up into glory. This is incredible. This is what they call the Christ hymn. Theologians call this. Probably, uh, most likely, in the early church, this would have been sung. It would have been sung as kind of a statement of faith. When you read, we confess, it's like a confessional. It's like a statement of faith. It's a proclamation of what we believe, like the Nicene Creed is. This would be a sentence as to Christ and his glory. Let's just look at it. There's six descriptions, you notice, and they're given in these, I'm going to look at them in three couplets. Couplets is a fancy word for two phrases at a time. We'll look at, at them together, because what it does, this hymn, this treasure that the church is the pillar and buttress of, is simply this, Christ's work accomplished. So the first thing that they would sing is they would sing about his work, the work of Jesus the Christ. Look at it with me. He says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. What do we learn by this? Well, manifested in the flesh is that he has taken on flesh and, and dwelt among us. It means that he has entered the realm of humanity. This doesn't speak about Jesus being created at all. No, he existed with the Father and the Spirit, but he has, in the fullness of time, come forth from a woman born under the law. He's come among us in the weakness of humanity. He's come as the perfect mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. And he's come as us, but without sin. This is the glory of Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was manifested. We, John says we saw him. We touched him. We heard him. He's real. This isn't some docetism. This isn't he seemed to be human. No, he was he ate fish like us in every way. And he came in the flesh to die so that he could be that perfect representative, that second Adam, if you will. The first Adam through whom we came into darkness, the second Adam through whom we come to God. And you see that we can come to God because he was vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, he was raised from the dead. That word vindicated is our word justification. He was, he was declared righteous. He was condemned a criminal, no doubt, but God said, no, 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 he was no criminal. He's my righteous son. 
In fact, him being raised vindicates his claims. His claims to be God, his claims to be the only way through whom men and women can be saved. It vindicates his claims of promised life forevermore. It vindicates his promises. He will never leave us nor forsake us. It vindicates his promise that he will one day come back and, and consummate all things, making all wrong right. That's vindicated by the Spirit. That's the work of Christ. But then notice the next two. The next two is this work accomplished is now to be proclaimed. You see that when it says, seen by angels and uh, proclaimed among the nations. Uh, seen by angels, the angels did attest to his work, right? They were there at the birth, they were there at the baptism. Uh, of course, they were there at the, at the resurrection. The angels were there at the ascension. In other words, the angels got a full dose of seeing and hearing this work that was being done. It was proclaimed to the entire angelic world and to the world of humanity. Notice it's proclaimed to all the nations. The message of the gospel is not a tribal word to a Western culture to say them. That's what works for us in the West. And those in the East, they have their own way. That's not the way we see it. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of all the nations. This is a huge missionary thrust. This is why we send people to the nations to proclaim the work manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. We take that out to the world. That's what has propelled missionaries for centuries. We have to proclaim it to the... It's too good of a word. I mean, it, it's too incredible of an act. It, it, if we know it and others don't, to hold it in, it, it almost seems, at a minimum, just radically selfish. To have the joy of forgiveness, the shame removed. All my past sins washed away, no longer remembered by God, far as the east is from the west. Is this not something that we need to share? locally, but also globally to the nations. But then notice the, the work that he accomplished, the work that's being proclaimed, is not being exalted. It's being exalted. Notice what he says there at the end. He says that he's believed on in the world and he's taken up in the glory. The exaltation of Christ's work is seen by the fruit being born of the proclamation of the gospel. People come to faith. Aren't many of us? Haven't we believed on him in the world? Haven't we enjoyed his work? Don't we praise him for it? When we are singing that first song about all that Christ has done, weren't your hearts being lifted up? We were exalting him. We believed on him. Our lives have been changed. Our sins have been forgiven. We're different people now, all because of the work that Christ has done. Uh, so, so this exaltation of the work is seen as people move from darkness to light, as they're born again, as they're coming to faith and understanding God and all that he's done. This exalts the Son. It's the fruit that he deserves of his labor. And being taken up to glory, of course, reminds us of the resurrection and the coronation and the sitting down. God, visibly, he didn't just disappear. He rose into the heavens in the sight of all, going through the prince of the air's territory, proclaiming victory over all things. God made it clear and visible. He is the king of everything. And I'm taking him to glory where he sits at the right hand. Thankfully, sits there interceding for us, the church. So when you see this great mystery, remember last week or the last couple of weeks I've been sharing, the mystery in scripture is not a knot that you have to untangle. It's a truth that has to be revealed. 
And Paul is revealing it to Timothy, Timothy, to the people, me, to you even now. So you have this glorious, significant church. We are the family of God. We want to walk in that, that kind of love, unity, joy, forgiving, being forgiven. We're the family of God. We gather together every Sunday. This isn't, this isn't you know, membership in the church isn't, yeah, we end up at the same place at the same time every Sunday morning. No, no, no. We are a family gathering to experience the presence of God among each of us. And then we're the pillar and buttress of truth. The mission of the church is to declare this. And what do we declare? Well, we see that in verse 16. So this is a beautiful passage for us. Hopefully it's like scraping off perhaps the varnish that's come upon our own souls kind of with a lowered vision of the glory of the church. And this is why this passage, God providentially had me preach before uh, Mark and Katie came to visit us as our desired candidates for the position of associate pastor. I, I've asked Mark to come forward and just kind of very casually, very openly, just share his heart regarding what's it mean to shepherd the people of God? How does one move towards seeking the spiritual good of one another. It would be a key role, a role that is instrumental in leading you to a greater love for God. It's a role that is to help you so that when you die, you'll be thankful for his influence in your life. And so, Mark, I'd like to have you come up and share that with us. Thank you. <laughs> 